Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, Happy New Year and welcome back to TVP. We're kicking off 2023 with historian Edward Chancellor. You may know him as the author of Devil Take the Hindmost, a history of financial speculation written in 1999, two years before the dot-com bubble burst, or as the author of Crunch Time for Credit, written in 2005, right before the GFC. You might be sensing a pattern here. Juan and Jack Dempsey, a portfolio manager in Schroeder's European equity team, sat down with Edward to discuss his newest book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. This episode will cover Edward's background in investment banking and his transition into writing after some time in capital markets research, biases that impact central bankers, why even historically-minded people miss teachings from the past, excess capacity and its impact on investment styles, and finally, the topic du jour, Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX case study from a human behavior point of view. Enjoy. Edward Chancellor, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Very well, thanks. For those that don't know who you are, and I can't imagine there are that many people in the finance community that have not heard of you, could you provide them with a little bit of an introduction? Um, well, I, I'm financial historian, uh, author of um, my first book was called Devil Take the Highmost History of Financial Speculation. And my most recent is called The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. I worked also as a financial journalist uh, for, and I'm currently, I was a founding member of, of the team at, at, at Breaking Views, now, now Reuters Breaking Views, the commentary service where I write a column, and I'm an investment strategist too. I used to work for uh, the Boston uh, Investment, uh, the, for the asset allocation team at the Boston investment firm GMO with Jeremy Grantham. And um, I, I've edited a couple of investment books on the so-called capital cycle theory of investment. That sort of broadly describes what I've been doing these this last quarter of a century. <laughs> we are going to be spending a lot of our time today talking about your latest book, The Price of Time, which is really amazing. But before we go into that, I'm a little bit curious. How how come you started doing M&A or investment banking for Lazard in the 1990s? 
And then you ended up writing one of the most prescient books in financial history a few years before the dot-com crash. Um, well, I'm, I think it was, <laughs> I mean, I, I did a postgraduate at Oxford um, and I left in 91 and I decided not to go into academia and to go into the city. And I, frankly, I didn't, I actually didn't know enough about the city. So I, <laughs> I went into corporate finance um, and then after a couple of years, I realized I wasn't cut out for that. I dare say, had I gone into the investment part of the business, I would have stayed around for longer. But corporate finance is not, you know, didn't suit me at all. And and then you went on to write a book just a couple of years before um, the dot-com crash, which is all about financial speculation and the money of the crowds. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think that if I have a particular talent, it's... Um, I'm able to, to, or at least what I try to do is to see what's going, what's going on in the financial world at any particular moment, and find out what sort of historical parallels there are. So, for instance, you know, with, with the, the internet bubble of the of the 1990s, uh, it looked to me very similar in some respects to the. British railway mania of the 1840s, which was also a communications revolution and led to a tremendous investment boom and, and bust. So, and I've sort of been doing that since then. I did work on the credit boom of you know the of the early 2000s, which was published as a report for Crispin Odie's outfit, and um, there, you know, I was interested in in the previous great. Uh, credit booms and, and and developed the sort of Minskyan idea of financial instability. And then more recently, you know, dwelling on these very low interest rates and what they might have done and what, what the very low interest rates have done in the past. One of the books you are quite well recognized for is Capital Returns, which is it true that it is that out of print? Well, there are two. There are two books. Uh, the, these are books which were um, put. The, they're, they're collections of reports by the London-based investment firm um, Marathon Asset Management, and they elaborate an idea of a former partner at Marathon called Jeremy Hosking, who who, who had this sort of you know, very, ins I think, very insightful way of looking at investment. Uh, which is to look at not to look not to look at demand in any industry or for any company demand projections into the future which he argued were inherently uncertain but instead to look at supply conditions which about which we know a lot more now you know with my history with my own background in inspective manias i this immediately you know, struck a chord with me because I, you know, I've already mentioned the the railway mania mm -hmm. of 1840s. Well, that was a time in which the UK, the British, you know, the amount of new railways planned in England were roughly equivalent to the existing toll road and were requiring a capital investment 
roughly on par with British GDP. So you you can see with that much investment, you were going to uh, have a serious overinvestment and and lower returns. So, so anyhow, so the capital cycle, I, the first book I did is is out of print. That's called Capital Account, and that actually that actually suffers from a shortage of supply because the publisher we used uh went actually went bust while while <laughs> while it was publishing the book so there didn't seem to be very many copies of that book and and the result of which uh where you look online you see it's you know it sells for you know, anywhere between 600 and a thousand dollars um but the then i did a, a, a later follow-on book called capital returns which is still in print um, and and in both those, I mean, the first book actually, I quite like the first book, the one that's hard to come by, because it tells the story of the dot com mm. boom from the sort of capital cycle perspective. That's really interesting. It's a little bit like the Seth Klarman's Margin of Safety, which is out of print and you can find on eBay for $2,000. You're not that far away. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's about quarter the price of Klarman, which I suppose <laughs> is about fair. I, I think um, capital returns is kind of getting harder to come by as well because the um all the graduates at Schroders keep asking me for my uh, my copy of it <laughs> so it must be or maybe they just don't want to pay for it maybe maybe you could ask about i guess about the the capital cycle approach um i guess one one thing the last i guess post gfc period has has been kind of um known for is is a lack of of um i guess companies going insolvent a lack of um productivity growth so do you do you think that the interest rate environment post GFC has prevented capital cycles from from playing out as as they would in a kind of normal environment? Yeah, I think I think that's the case. Um, I mean, in, in part, this is because you know, with the very I'm, with the very low interest rates of recent years. In particular, after the global financial crisis, there was a huge incentive of companies to uh, buy back their shares, often borrowing to buy back their shares rather than invest in new in 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 new activities. I mean, after the financial crisis, you know, demand, you know, sort of top line growth was hard to come by. Uh, as you mentioned, um, the one of the consequences of the intervention, uh, the aggressive intervention by central banks in both the US and and Europe, was to impede the creative destruction that normally accompanies a uh, a recession. And as I point out in the book, what's curious about the so-called Great Recession is that levels of of corporate insolvencies uh, were, were, were at, was actually lower than in the two previous U.S. downturns after the dot-com bust and in the early 1990s. So you can, you can imagine if you're operating in a world with little top-line growth where your competitors who might normally have gone bust are still operating and you can borrow very cheaply to buy back your shares and that that share repurchase will be uh, accretive to uh, earnings per share 
and the market is valuing uh, EPS growth uh, with a higher multiple, and your stock, your your compensation package is linked uh, to the to to the stock price, then you you see there was a tremendous incentive to to not to invest, uh, but rather to 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 engage in in financial engineering, and I think um, I think that that's happened and. And this is also, um, you know, this is also important from a sort of market valuation perspective because, um, you know, one of the ideas of the capital cycle is that valuations come down once there's been a surge in investment. Now, I was working at, in, in, as I said, in the asset, alloc- asset allocation team in, in GM, in a GMO in the you know, after the global financial crisis. And our valuation models uh, suggested the U.S. equities were very highly valued. And what we saw, uh, what I saw at least at the time, was that the U.S. companies weren't actually investing much. So you didn't have a sort of, you didn't have a capital positive capital cycle or upturn of the capital cycle. And I think that partly explains why the U.S. market continued to do so well over the course of the last decades, whereas, let's say, emerging markets that were much cheaper on paper valuation um, from 2009 onwards actually had attracted more capital investment, in particular China, notoriously, and delivered much worse investment returns. So I, I think that you know, and the capital cycle approach can be you know applied for an individual company and sector. But I also argue it, it's also a, a useful you know asset allocation tool when looking at different stock markets. This is a podcast that where we've explored decision making and human biases throughout the three years that we've been running it, and we have always thought of and approach human biases or behavioral biases in the context of the market place, the, the market investor. We have never thought about it or how, how behavior biases have, a, have an impact as well on central bankers and the people that are designing monetary policy. So I wanted to ask you what sort of biases have an impact on the people that design monetary policy, say over the last 15 to 20 years, and maybe at the present? Um, so the biases of the monetary policy community, uh, I think um, that they're, let's say they're, that they're twofold. One, I think, is, is simply um, an, a, uh, an academic, is people adhering to the same academic framework or intellectual framework in monetary policy making they have their so-called canonical model of um that that has a number of assumptions uh that you know we <laughs> we those of us who live in the real world and who've invested in the real world wouldn't necessarily adhere to um and so i think that and and in particular one of the I mean, there are a number of problems. I think with 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 the sort of monetary 
policy model. But what one obvious, to my mind, one obvious consequence is that it, it creates a sort of groupthink. Um, and, and everyone adheres to the same model. Um, in particular, for instance, is, there's this belief that what happens in the financial world, whether it's you know valuation of assets or 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 the level of interest rates, is determined what's going on in the real world. Whereas, you know, I think there's something you know a bit more nuanced going on, which is a feedback between what happens in the financial world and what happens in the real world. I mean, friends, you know, we were just discussing a minute ago the impact of low interest rates driving financial engineering rather than investment. So there's a clear case in which, you know, the amount, you know, the amount of investment activity in the real world is determined by, um, by something financial. Um, and I don't, and I, I think the monetary policy makers don't recognize that. I think, you know, I think I, I point out in the book, you know, that the Federal Reserve is the world, the world's largest employer of, of PhDs in, mm-hmm. in monetary economics. And I think that that has probably a, a harmful effect uh, because it makes the chairman of the Federal Reserve extraordinarily powerful person in determining the nature of you know, the research that takes place and the conclusions of that research. For instance, I'm told that during the chairmanship of Alan Greenspan that went from, what, sort of uh, 1987 through to 2006, early 2006, that you weren't, you know, that at the Fed you weren't mentioned the word bubble. It was a sort of, it was a sort of not, you know, it, it, it was, it, you weren't present Chairman Greenspan with anything to do with any research suggesting that there was a bubble in the US stock market. I think un, under, under Chairman Bernanke, again, I was told by a former Fed governor that you weren't, you weren't to mention anything to do with interest rates being responsible for low interest rates prior to the global financial crisis being responsible for the U.S. housing bubble or for the flood of money into uh, securitized credit. Um, so I, the other day I, I was in New York at a conference and I met a, a former Fed governor uh, called Thomas Hernig, who'd been president of the Kansas City Fed, but also former head of the FDIC, the uh, bank insurer. Uh, and he, he said he'd read my book and agreed with everything in it. It's <laughs> <laughs> sort of interesting because, um, you know, what I, you know, the only responses I've had so far you know, from the, if you will, from monetary policy establishment have been sort of via the pages of the FT and the Economist, which are, you know, rather dismissive of, of what I write. Anyhow, the reason I mention that is that Hernig, when he was on the federal, on the, um, the federal open markets committee, the interest rate, um, committee, he, he was one of the so-called hawks and the hawks were those who were, 
constantly fretting about the unintended consequences of ultra-easy money. And I think what happens, what happened, what probably happens at the Fed and, and at other central banks is just what happens, as you probably experienced yourself, on investment boards is if you tend to hold a view <laughs> uh, that is not shared by the rest of the investment board, you tend to sort of get shown the door sooner or later. Mm -hmm. um, and so all, all, all committees have a tendency to come round to a sort of group thing. And, and, and then I think the other thing is, you know, I, I've elaborated at great length what I consider to be the, you know, the, the harmful unintended consequences of monetary policy, of, 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 if you will, unconventional monetary policy across a number of, of um, in different areas. But whether it's, you know, the appearance of financial fragility, which we can discuss later if you want, but also the decline in productivity, rising rising um, inequality and so forth. Now, you can imagine that if you'd been unwittingly responsible for some of these unintended consequences, one might not wish to sort of hear the message. Instead, you know, there's a, here you, perhaps in one of your discussions of sort of of um, behavioral biases, you discuss the whole idea of cognitive dissonance. And the notion of co cognitive dissonance is, is that you simply don't uh, hear or pay attention to information that, that is, is dissonant to the thesis you hold. In fact, actually, when faced with dissonant information, such as a failed prediction forecast, uh, people tend to double down to become almost more fervent in their beliefs. And I, I think that's what's happened to the monetary policy world. There are, as I mentioned in the book, these um, these voices in the wilderness. Um, it, and in particular, it's interesting that they there's only one institution where you find them, namely the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, which is you know, sometimes known as the central banker's central bank. And there you had you know, William White, the former chief economist who, who left in 2007, warning of the dangers of, of central banks only focusing on price stability and not paying any attention to credit growth. And then you have, you know, uh, White's um, former colleague, Claudio Barrio, who Borio, who took over as head of research at BIS and has done a, you know, has led a, a team research effort over the last 12 years or so into many of the, uh, uh, as I say, many of the unintended consequences of monetary policy. So you almost had to be outside the establishment, like Borio and White. They weren't, I mean, it's very notable that they weren't actually within any of the central banks themselves, but sort of on the periphery. You even mentioned in your book the case of Mervyn King, the previous central uh, governor of the Central Bank of England, because I think that he even said in 2016, after he retired, that interest rates were being kept very low. But when he was at the helm of the bank, he didn't change course. Is that correct? I think Mervyn King is 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 a very interesting 
case and, and very admirable, actually, because we can all make mistakes. And we all make mistakes. I mean, again, one of the, I think, to my mind, you know, perhaps the most useful thing about being in the investment world is constantly confronting one's own errors and having to come to terms with one's own errors. And um, if bureaucrats, policymakers, often don't actually recognize their errors. And I think that's sort of largely the case with the Federal Reserve. I mean, you read any of the stuff from Ben Bernanke, the, Ben Bernanke, the, who was head of the Federal Reserve, you know, at the time of the global financial crisis, he's ne there's never anything in Bernanke's writing that suggests, you know, he might have messed up. Uh, whereas Mervyn King, you know, uh, he implemented, um, you know, the, the Bank of England's inflation targeted, target at the, you know, running into the global financial crisis. And, you know, at the time, you know, obviously household credit was going pretty strongly in Britain and you had, you know, banks like Northern Rock offering, you know, loan to value, value rate mortgages of 125%, while at the same time being heavily dependent on the, um, on the liquidity of the interbank markets for raising funds. Now, King, so we went into, you know, he was running the Bank of England going into the financial crisis. And at the time, the bank, uh, you know, had coined this acronym, acronym called NICE, Non-Inflationary Consistent Expansion. <laughs> so it was a sort of pat on the back. And then I think after the financial crisis, uh, then King left. I can't remember what year he left, let's say sort of sometime, I don't know, 20, 2011 or sometime around then. And he then reflected on it. He's written a couple of books, one, one in 2016 called The End of Alchemy, and, and the other, a really extremely good book that he wrote with uh, John Kay called Radical Uncertainty, in which I think King has really sort of given up. He's... He, 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 the experience of the global financial crisis changed his view about what central bankers uh, were doing, what their targets should be, the dangers of setting these targets, the problems caused by monetary policy, how to operate in a world of radical uncertainty. So if you will, that to my mind, it's a sign of a really first-class mind to have, to have been able quite late on in life to have to have formed a, to reformed your your view of how the financial world and monetary policy make, making works and and you know, great kudos to Lord King for doing that. In instead, you uh, you may have noticed that King also was on the back on the House of Lords committee that put out a report last year, which was entitled "Quantitative Easing: A Dangerous Addiction." Uh, and pointing out some of the you know, problems caused um, by, well, the addiction to quantitative easing, uh, not least the massive expansion of the money supply during the COVID lockdowns, and the fact that as a result of the quantitative easings, the, the, from a corporate finance perspective, 
um, the Bank of England had, in effect, swapped fixed-rate, long-dated debt for short-rated floating debt at a time when the fixed-rate, long-dated debt was trading at very low levels. So that was a, you know, a corporate finance disaster of an epic proportion that we taxpayers <laughs> will live with for years to come. Could I ask, you've, you've mentioned Ben Bernanke a couple of times and maybe not taking um, responsibility for the kind of low rate environment in the US. But um, in, in, his, in his autobiography, he says he did try to prevent the housing bubble in the US. He was raising rates into the GFC, but that the, the long end, basically the curve flattened and obviously mortgages in the US are set off the, the long end of the curve rather than the short end so that there wasn't actually much he could do, the global savings glut. And I guess there's other kind of mooted reasons, you know, demographics, et cetera, for the reason for low, permanently lower interest rates. Do you buy into that? Not 100%. He went to start. The, first of all, Bernanke uh, was the author of what's called the global savings glut hypothesis. The idea, as you say, that, that long-term rates were coming down because there was global savings glut. But in fact, the global savings glut, if one examines it, was really China and a number of other emerging markets intervening in the foreign exchange markets to to buy up dollars um, and and add to their foreign exchange reserves. And if you look at China, so China was running a large current account surplus, I think over 10% of, of, of its own GDP by 2007. And so current account surplus is, you know, Often seen, you know, seen as the proxy for a nation's, you know, excess savings. Uh, uh, but if you look at what was happening in China, these weren't savings, household savings. These were corporations uh, boosting their investment, and that investment was being driven by bank lending. So when a bank, and this is a point made by Claudio Borio. When a bank creates money or, or makes a loan that is then used for investment purposes, it generates saving out of nothing. So, you know, the you know the what happened is, you know, in the early two thousands was a sort of codependency between the U.S. and and and, and China. The the U.S. had these low interest rates. These um, and that fed through to a housing bubble, and that housing bubble was accompanied by roughly a half a five hundred, roughly a five hundred billion dollars a year of mortgage equity withdrawal by homeowners, who then spent the money on goods and uh, not least Chinese imports. So, <laughs> so, so the Chinese were then selling stuff to the Americans and taking the dollars that they received for their exports and using them to buy treasuries. Now, I mean, you know, to call that a global savings glut is, I think, a, um, is, is, a, is a pretty simplistic and, and misleading way of describing it. The other thing is that you know, it's simply not the case that the U.S. housing boom was entirely driven off the long end. There were a lot of 
if you remember, um, short-dated mortgage loans, so-called option arms, uh, option adjustable rate mortgages, also known as negative amortization loans. And towards the end of the housing bubble, those option arms played a pretty big role. I'm not sure if, you know, this the the American craze for flipping houses, (laughs) um, which was you know, I was living in in New York in two thousand five six when when that was going on big time. Um, I think those were largely the sort of ha- household flipping was largely uh, funded with option arms or negative amortization arms. You could go out in effect and raise money with a so called liar's loan. In other words, you'd fake you you just you fake your credit uh, your income or or your credit credentials get a a loan to value mortgage of you know up to uh, up to or even exceeding the value of the property you were buying, fund it with a negative amortization loan. So you weren't actually paying any interest on the loan up front, but interest only kicked in after a couple of years. And then you could flip the house um six months later or the property six months later. And people were doing this in in U.S. prisons at the time. So, again, to say that, you know, the savings glut was responsible for the housing bubble is is wrong. And, and then, I, you know, you know, we're talking about groupthink. I mentioned in my book that, you know, that Bernanke um, tried to sort of refute suggestions that monetary policy was in any way responsible uh, for, the, for the housing bubble and, and bust. By referencing, you know, internal Fed research, which, when you looked at it, was, you know, to my mind, you know, uh, pretty pretty partial, and 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 I I wasn't at all convinced by its conclusions. Well, I think that it was Jim Grant who mentioned when you made an appearance appearance on his podcast very recently that when it comes to the world of finance, there's really nothing new. We have gone through many of these things sometimes many times before, either as you were referring in your book with uh, the Mississippi company and everything that was happening in the 1720s, I think. You will correct me if if I'm getting the date wrong. And then back in the 1920s. Why is it that we as humans and people that have studied history so much, and I think that Bernanke was an expert on what happened or how the Fed reacted in the 1930s, are unable to learn from the past. So Jim Grant's comment is that, is that we're, we're always stepping on the same rakes in the financial <laughs> world. And he, he also has this great line where he says that progress in in science is linear, but in finance it's cyclical so that's just another way of saying we repeat the same mistakes (laughs) why do we repeat it i suppose because for a number of factors one you know human nature doesn't change so you 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 know you mentioned you know all those behavioral biases stay the same greed fear fear of losing your job um I'm, I'm t- actually today I'm writing a piece, you know, I'm writing and looking at the whole fraud in the crypto world uh, associated with um, his Sam Bankman Freed, SBF, and his collapsed crypto exchange. And, and actually, if you look at it, 
you know, the credulity of the investors who went into into FTX, you know, valuing it, I think, you know, $32 billion. The company just started up in, in 2019 by, you know, a guy who's, you know, 30 years old and, you know, sleeps on a beanbag and wears shorts and plays <laughs> games all day long. And the way, you know, the way he, you know, the fawning of the SBF, the, the, the way, you know, trading in sort of virtual assets that don't, that don't that don't really have any value, a bit like sort of tulip bulbs in uh, in the 1630s, or the incredible leverage offered. You know, but do you know FTX was offering 101 to one leverage? I mean, the cultivating of political connections. You know, um, so ba- so Bankman Fried was a you know gave, gave money to the uh, Biden election campaign and 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 to the. I think it was second largest donor after after um, George, Soros. after George Soros to the Democratic uh, midterm election campaign. Now, you know that you know you know the South Sea Bubble of seventeen twenty. The <laughs> directors of that scam gave money to the King of England, bought up most of the British Parliament, including the Chancellor of England, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, then you you know so you've got the, these things. The behaviors are, are very similar, and the, the incentives, yes, to make a lot of money, to pull a fraud. The way that people, you know, I think, I think it's Galbraith, J.K. Galbraith says somewhere that there's nothing more disconcerting than seeing your neighbors getting very rich very quickly. <laughs> then you know, my old boss Jeremy Grantham, you know, likes to talk in the investment world about about what he calls career risk, you know, that if you don't partake in a bubble, uh, you know, the, the if and, and all everyone else is, you know, if your peers are Kathy Wood's arc and the Bailey Gifford what's it called? The mortgage the Ed, what's Scottish it called? The Scottish, the Scottish mortgage. And if those are your your benchmarks and if you don't play the same game as them, you're um you're going to lose a job. Have to find something else to do. So these are the there's a and then you say that so you have the behavioural problems, you know, biases, if you will. You have the you know the career and the 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 incentives from career. And what I'm trying to do with this new book is to to give the sort of interest or monetary underpinnings of the bubble. So you often you I mean what I argue is that. I try and take in this book. I try and draw, take attention, you know, draw attention away from the behavioural aspects of bubbles towards their monetary underpinnings, and that the simplest way to explain that is, as you know, that the you know that all assets have to be, you know, to arrive at a, at, at a current value of an asset, you have to discount the future cash flow, and therefore, if you change the discount rate. You're going to change the capital, you know, the the, the capital value, and and as Warren Buffett says, you know, the you know uh, bond yields are to valuation, or the Treasury yield is to valuation, what gravity is to matter, and what we've seen in recent years, obviously, is is you know the lowest ever interest rates in history, accompanied by, frankly, across the board, the most elevated valuations, and again, what I find interesting. A point I make is that when you have extremely low interest rates, the 
Assets that seem to benefit most of all are those that actually generate no income whatsoever, like the crypto stuff, um, which are pure, really pure sort of speculative tokens. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, in the casino, you, you go into a casino and you pick up a token, trade your money for tokens, go to the casino, and you were sort of doing the same, same in crypto space, but with assets which... As Bankman, as you know, as as Bankman Fried himself says, were fundamentally valueless. I mean, that's what's most curious to my mind. Um, I'm sorry, I'm digressing on this because I'm thinking about it, is that this? If you look at the interviews with SBF, he's more or less telling you that the whole crypto space is a complete fraud, mm. which uh, which turns out not only to be true, but that he was at uh, the epicenter of the fraud. Curious. Okay. Could I ask, we mentioned a few speculative bubbles, uh, Mississippi companies, South Sea, Tulips, I guess tech there, the dot-com boom, and then obviously we're probably in the, the middle of a uh, kind of deflationary uh, bust from, I guess, more of the speculative assets you mentioned about. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Stan Druckenmiller recently, and he said that there's never been a asset um, bubble bursting uh, without being followed by a period of deflation. So I think it's fair to say we probably have a couple of asset bubbles bursting at the moment, but we obviously got high inflation at the moment. What's your take on that? Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't completely discount that view. You know, when I was at GMO during the global financial crisis, I was sort of, I was sort of in two minds. You know, I, I was aware, you know, that all great uh, credit booms and and speculative busts often you know tend to have a, a deflationary impact and then you but then you had a you know a massive um you know response by the central banks of quantitative easing and it wasn't clear to me at the time and i was wrong that that money would remain so to speak trapped in the financial system fueling asset price inflation but non not a broader consumer price inflation I think now the situation is different. I think, you know, as QE morphed over, you know, 13 years or so into the sort of COVID lockdowns, you had money going, you had money going much more directly into the pockets of the household pockets with you know, furlough in the UK and stimulus checks in the US. And obviously a lot of that went into the financial world and crypto world and created, you know, the the whole meme stock boom and so forth and SPAC boom, uh, but also a lot of it went out into the real economy. Now, so let's, I think there's there are several distinctions between now and 2008. Um, and these are, these are just matters, these are judgment calls, okay? So, and when, I, when one makes a judgment call, you're saying, you know, you could well be wrong, okay? But the difference, <laughs> as far as I see it, this is that households were forced to deleverage after, after 2008. And um, this, this latest boom, this latest sort of boom period has not really been on household balance sheets. I, I think when governments get into debt, and a lot of the debt has come in the last, you know, since the global financial crisis, has been on the balance sheets of governments. That tends to be um, 
it tends to be less sort of a deflationary um, debt excess debt. In fact, it's it actually creates a much greater incentive to inflate away the debt. Households can't print money or can't lean on their central banks to keep interest rates low or to carry on funding themselves. So, but but governments can, and they can create conditions of financial instability. Uh, sorry, financial repression. So I think that's you know a pretty big difference. And then there is this other problem, which is the central banks having engaged in so much quantitative easing, initially for ending the financial, you know, bring, bringing stability to the financial markets. Then they started, you know, quantitative easing or com- continued quantitative easing for sort of uh, macroeconomic purposes, like bringing down uh, unemployment. Uh, but then more recently, they reverted to QE after periods of attempted monetary tightening, such as the US in early 2019, when its first period of raising rates was interrupted by convulsions in the US repo market, causing, um, leading to both uh, a return to QE, but it wasn't called QE, um, and cutting interest rates. And then if you look at the recent ructions in the gilts market in Britain, you know, there, there was a gap of only, I think, four days between the Bank of England's announcement of so-called quantitative tightening, where it was going to you know, shrink its balance sheet, to the resumption of QE in order to pr- protect the gilts market and the UK pension funds. So the danger from that perspective is that central banks, you know, we're not at the end of QE. Um, but the danger is that the fragilities that I describe in the book that have been accumulating in recent years will, as they are exposed, require central banks to engage with more and more QE. And at some moment, it's conceivable that you can get you know, too much of a good thing, in which case you, you could have a loss of confidence in the currency. And that's the sort of thesis of um, Paul Singer, uh, of Elliot, you know, the, the US hedge fund manager, who put out a note that was cited in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago, pointing, you know, saying that you know the you know the central banks are, are just you know are likely to to get you know to to um, trigger a, a high or even what Singer calls a hyperinflation, you know, which you know, depending on how you measure it, is is somewhere between fifty percent a month and one hundred percent a year. <laughs> um, the the uh, hyperinflation or you know collapse in monetary in the monetary system. Um, so we'll we'll see. I mean, I I don't you know you were saying that we have you know we've seen everything in the past, and that's true to some extent in behaviours. But I don't think you know we've, to my mind. We've never seen such an extensive sort of global, um, I don't know what to call it, um, you know, fragility. And, and the way I see it, you know, I think I say somewhere in the book, if you look at the financial crises of the last 30 odd years, two things are noticeable. One is that they 
Each one costs more in terms of losses than the previous one. Mm -hmm. And each one has a broader geographical reach. So you went from the Asian crisis to the dot-com bust to the global financial crisis. Um, and the question is, you know, now China, you know, obviously is a much more parlous state than it was in 2008. So the question is um, whether the next, whether this ongoing crisis, which started at the beginning of this year, and, you know, I, I think probably, you know, a bit like the, you know, the U.S. subprime problems started in early 2007, February, to be precise, when the HSBC, um, HSBC's U.S. Consumer Finance Division started producing, showing losses on its um, subprime lending. and But it still took 18 months, you know, from that moment through to the uh, Lehman bust. And I, I think, you know, I'm, I think if you look what's going on now, you know, yes, the markets are down in bear market territory, but the, you know, both bond and bull markets. But to me, it's still relatively early days. It's not, and I, I don't have to say, you know, everyone, you know, if you live through these events, um, people are in, with hindsight, there's a much more confidence that they knew all about it. So everyone now you know, thinks that they knew the global financial crisis was coming, but. It's simply not true. You know, the, the U.S. stock market reached a you know an all-time high in October two thousand and seven, and and most investors and and commentators weren't quite prepared for what was to come. Um, and I have to say, I think that that's sort of the state today. You know, obviously, the the everything bubble in inverted commas has has burst and. You know the the whole. You know the markets' gains since the COVID market mania had largely reversed. You know, especially in crypto space, with sort of Bitcoin being back where it was in early 2020. But I, I have to say, I think there's probably you know a bit further to go on this front. Might be the case that going back to the topic of cycles, things do take a very long term to unravel because many people have been raising the alarms in terms of the fragility of the system for over a decade now and pointing to the fact that Fed actions more than 12 years ago were causing the, the fragility of the system that you have been referring to. Um, do you think that's the case? Sorry, that the, the, the Fed actions have created the financial... So the, the, fact, the fact that people have been or many commentators or market participants have been pointing to the fragility of the market given Fed actions post-GFC. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, look, I, was, <laughs> I was among those. <laughs> and that, you know, that, I mean, in the end, that's why I wrote, you know, a book on, you know, it's why I wrote A History of Interest, because I thought, and I mean, this is based on my time actually working for GMO as an investor. I, I thought that, that um, I thought it wasn't just a question that monetary policymakers didn't understand fully the consequences of their actions. I didn't think that, you know, any, any of us who were interested in finance and investment had a proper handle on what interest did across the board. And, and Jim Grant you know, refers to it as the universal price, um, a price that affects really all our act, 
all our financial activities and 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 economic activities and 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 i think that this lowering of the interest rate to you know to the lowest levels in history and negative in europe and and, and japan uh, is you know really one of the most significant developments in the history of finance and really you know go back to this thing you know have we seen every, every, everything before and the answer is no i mean you know, we, I, mean, I don't know when you started uh, your careers, but, you know, over the last 25 years, we've seen really the most extraordinary markets in, in history, as mm. far as I can see. And, you know, there's nothing, you know, quite as absurd as the world of, you know, the so, you know, the peak $2 trillion valuation of, of you know, the crypto fantasy. But there's, there's some, there's, um, the, you know, this very low interest have, have, to use the word the phrase of the former fed governor jeremy stein they they've got into all the cracks um you know valuations leverage ratios allocation of capital and so forth and and it 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 really will take um a while for that to you know to work its way out could i ask um I mean, it seems like a lot of things that have driven low interest rates over the past couple of decades, you know, whether that's globalization, keeping a a cap on, I guess, domestic wages, and then obviously the price deflation, I guess, from products coming from from Asia to the the Western world. You know, it seems like a lot of these are now in reverse or at least slowing. Um, Do you think that changes the financial landscape for the next 20 years versus the past? Yeah, I do. I mean, see, you know, you're aware that these bond cycles bond market cycles tend to last generations, you know, 30, 40 years up, yields go up for 30, 40 year, years, and then they go down for 30, 40 years. And we're just off the end of, you know, one of the great, probably the greatest bond bull market in history from the early, from sort of 82 till, you know, till, till uh, last year. So a, a f- exactly 40-year bull market uh, when interest rates were, um, you know, were in the Second World War, the Fed fixed short-term rates and 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 Treasury yield sort of yield curve control at very low rates, and then you got inflation after the Second World War, and then you got you know, interest rates rising for the following thirty-five years. So I think for really you know rest of our careers, uh, it's likely not. It, these things are not given, but it's likely that we will be on a a rising interest rate cycle. The point you make about globalization is quite right. I think is that that um, you know in periods of globalization, whether it's from movement of of labor and immigration uh, into if you will, the sort of wealthier countries, or whether it's the uh, globalization in terms of trade, the effect has been to, you know, it tends to be to lower, or to lower real wage growth, to have a decline and to lower the cost of traded goods and therefore to uh, have a dampening effect on on inflation. Uh, and, and then, you know, and then the, the overall impact of that is 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 lower interest rates, and we, we saw that in the you know in the nineteenth century, second half nineteenth century, and then 
you know, th- those globalization tends to, uh, when it's gone on for a while, tends to to elicit a sort of a political reaction. You know, what's called it's dismissed as uh, as populism, but you know, there's a real reason for populism. If if you know, if workers feel that their wages, their living conditions are deteriorating, their quality of life, and so in the 19th century that was arrested at the end of the 19th century. And then, you know, you had some movement for populism. You had globalization fragmenting and interest rates rising, you know, over, you know, uh, 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 up until the early 20s and, the, and, and until that turned again. But it, it's not, the as I say, these things are not given. You had the complete blow up of, of globalization in the 1930s. And that actually coincided with the period in which interest rates were low and falling. So, you know, you, 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 I mean, I, I think one can learn a lot from financial history, but you, you also need, you, you mustn't, one mustn't fall into the trap of being historically determinist, deterministic. Um, you just use your knowledge of history to, to give you a, a, a certain understanding and then to, to see whether, you know how how current conditions are similar and how they differ. Do you think that um, you know money having a price again or a cost um, with rates you know not zero anymore could actually be construed as positive in terms of uh, you know you referenced earlier creative destruction? I think the last decade or thirteen years has been quite distinct as having a, a lack of creative destruction, um, and you know that shows up in quite you know low productivity growth numbers. Do you think that kind of focus on the, you know, survival of the, the fittest or the strongest could actually be a, a, a positive? Um, I mean, in an ideal world, um, that would be positive. I mean, it's not just, as I say, it's not just a question of so-called zombie companies being kept afloat. But, you know, frankly, if, you know, a young person is severely disadvantaged uh, by this, Low, by the low interest rate env- environment, uh, you get lower return, you know, high high asset prices and high uh, high asset prices make it harder to get onto the housing market. They make it harder to to uh, to accumulate any capital, um, and and in a way, the, this very low interest rate environment has suited the older generation relative to the younger. Something that almost you know, when you look at the way that, you know, for instance, the government in Britain insists on a triple lock on pension payments, state pension payments, so that the pensioners are more or less guaranteed to earn more than working people, you sort of almost feel that our political system has a, a dangerous political bias uh, towards or distributional bias towards the elderly. Anyhow, um the trouble, so yes, I think there are a huge number of advantages that can come from setting the price of time somewhere closest to what, what might be considered its equilibrium level. The trouble is, going back to these fragilities, if you built debt structures and valuations and so forth on, on the assumption of very low interest rates, it, you can't get back to the, to the, to a normal rate without triggering a crisis. I mean, take, look, think, think, for instance, of the, of the UK pension funds. No one, you, no one suffered more obviously 
uh, from the low interest rate environment than a defined benefit pension plan. So you would have thought, hey, the, the defined benefit pension plans will be absolutely cock-a-hoop. <laughs> when uh, interest rates rise, the return on bond yields rise and the, and the discount rate applied to their future liability rises and therefore their current liabilities decline. But then what happens? You know, in the in the real world, turns out the defined benefit pension plans have been you know, have been taking you know leveraged bets in the interest rate swap markets on on 50-year UK gilts that lose 85% of their value as interest rates even begin to normalize. So you know the the prime beneficiaries on paper of a return to normal interest rates turned out to be on the verge of bringing down the financial system and that that, that in me is to me is almost a perfect example of why you know why it's difficult to normalize rates people people you know some you know who reviewed my book say oh chancellor's calling for higher rates i'm not that's not actually what i say at all i just you know I'm, i point out the, the difficulty of the almost inconceivable difficulty of normalizing rates under the current, current circumstances Edward, we're coming to an end of our session and we cannot pass on the opportunity of asking you for a book recommendation. Um, okay. What should I read? <laughs> You've got me rather. I mean, what have I liked this year? I liked, um, I like this very good history of sanctions called the economic weapon. Um, I can't, hey, it's what I got on my day. When I was in New York the other day, Jean-Marie Jean Eveillard gave me a copy of his, uh, of, formerly of First Eagle, gave me a copy of his book, Value Value Investing Makes Sense. That seems like a, a book that <laughs> all investors should have. There's, there's, a, there's a book I read recently, investment book, called Simple But Not Easy by um, by a by a, a, a sort of veteran English fund manager. Um, Oilfield, Richard Oilfield. Richard, well, you're Oilfield. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was very good. I think he's very, very wise. And that's been recently republished. Re, re so I think the Richard Oldfield book was, would be definitely a good book to read. I, I, I bought the Nouriel Roubini book on sort of world, mega world falling to pieces, but I haven't read it yet, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I can't. I can't read. But then I mentioned earlier, didn't I? You know the the, the, the John Kay and 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 Mervyn King's radical uncertainty. You should probably try and get John Kay on your show if you haven't had him already, because. I well, we, we, we tried with uh, Mervyn King, but he was very busy in the summer. He wanted some quiet time to sit down and write, actually. So we, we yeah. might try in the next coming months. I think radical uncertainty is, you know, is really a you know, superb book. That's fantastic. Edward, thank you very much for your time. It was fascinating. Great. Thanks a lot. <laughs>